Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species, where a radio show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. We're dedicated to raising issues um, that concern animals, and it includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. We're broadcasting from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are via the 3CR website, and all podcasts are on the Freedom of Species website as well as iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend and I'm joined in the studio today by Kate Gracie on the panel and Andy Medic from Animal Justice Party. Good afternoon. But he's also a FOZ reporter, roving reporter. Yes. (laughs) Today we chat about two sweet victories that have eventuated in the past two weeks. Andy is going to talk about the two-year-long successful campaign that resulted in a rejection of a new greyhound breeding and training facility being built in the area of Mirable Shire in Victoria. But firstly, we welcome back to Freedom of Species, Christelle Force from Aussie Farms by phone to discuss the charges that were dismissed well, thrown out of court, uh, out of court against himself and fellow activist Dory Kiss in Australia's first ag gag case. Chris, are you there? Yes. Good afternoon. Fantastic. For new listeners, Chris, what is Aussie Farms? Aussie Farms is an animal rights organisation. Um, we fight to end commercialised animal uh, animal abuse and exploitation by public um, education about modern farming and slaughtering practices. Now, gosh. Aussie Farms, as you've just said, has comprehensively, exhaustingly just, um, you know, collected so much footage. It, it, you know, if it was in tape form, it could circle the globe a million times, I'm sure. And it exposes system, systemic legalised animal cruelty, the everyday bog standard husbandry practices um, within these facilities. This exposure of footage has the animal agricultural industry infuriated, to say the least? Um, I was reading that there's the Evidence Act 1995 that states that surveillance footage, even when it is collected illegally, has the potential to be used in criminal prosecutions against individuals or corporations charged with animal cruelty and has done so, as we know, successfully on multiple occasions. In fact, it's been the, the only driver... Um, in changing 
positive policy around these individual animals in these facilities? You know, for example, in 2012, animal liberation footage revealed Wilberforce Abattoir, which is just outside Sydney, was slaughtering pigs and other animals inhumanely. So the abattoir was fined $5,000 by the New South Wales Food Authority. And the investigation prompted a government review which found animal welfare breaches in every slaughterhouse in New South Wales, including, quote, incompetency of slaughtering st- the slaughterhouse staff and ineffective stunning. Now, the investigation resulted in the introduction of mandatory animal welfare officers being employed by abattoirs, as well as mandatory welfare training for those who actually conduct the slaughter. And, and look, also I think it's relevant bringing out here too. Um, this has entered the public arena. While a lot of what Chris has, has, has brought to light has, has um, been highly publicised, and particularly around this Agar case, it, it, it's highlighted by the fact that probably one of the most famous public cases is all about where um, all of these this footage that was brought to air on the Four Corners program, which exposed cruelty and uh, live baiting in the greyhound industry uh, right across every state in Australia. And, and it, this, what's happened with Chris and, and, and Dory um, highlights the need for activists like themselves to be able to continue what they do to bring these, the, the, these acts of animal cruelty into the light so the public can see exactly what's mm. going on. So, yeah, there's been many accounts that how important this footage is in changing um, policy around animals. So for new listeners, Chris, what are ag-gag laws? Because there are already substantial laws to protect farmers, individuals and corporations, you know, such as trespass laws. There's also the use and installation of audio or visual surveillance devices. That can also amount to offence in an offence in some jurisdictions. So activists already place themselves at themselves at risk of potential civil and criminal charges before ag-gag laws were introduced. So what are ag-gag laws in addition to those laws? The main aim of ag-gag laws is basically to prevent or gag the publication of anything exposing animal agriculture. So it's about keeping consumers in the dark from what's really happening inside animal agriculture facilities. So it kind of covers a broad range of, of different laws. Um, there have been a few enacted in the US, which in, I think, a couple cases now have been um, determined to be unconstitutional. So this is the first time that they've tried to do something similar to that in Australia. And they're using uh, a 2007 law in New South Wales, the Surveillance Devices Act, New South Wales. Um, and it's the first time it's been used in this way to target activists and to target publication of footage of animal cruelty and it's clear from anyone who sees this footage or the photographs that that I was charged for publishing it's clear that it is animal cruelty and it's it's very clear that the whole point of this is to um, to try and prevent and dissuade material of that kind from ever reaching the public. So just going into the actual laws themselves they criminalize all that you know covert surveillance they also require that any obtained footage of animal cruelty be turned over to the enforcement agencies? Is that right? Not this, not this particular okay. law. There mm-hmm. was an attempt to push forward a national law along those lines. Um, it didn't end up really getting anywhere, but I'm sure we haven't heard the last of it. So this particular law is aimed at, um, first of all, prohibiting the uh, use or installation of optical surveillance devices and listening devices, so in this case, it was handheld cameras inside a pig farm. 
um, and it also aims to prevent the publication or dissemination of material obtained from the use of an optical surveillance device or listening device. So, you know, you can it, it's clear that there's there are clear legitimate purposes for this law. Think where things where privacy comes into account, so you don't want people installing cameras in bathrooms, that kind of thing. That's that's the kind of thing this law was intended for. But now they're using it for cases where there's no individual present, there's no worker present. Most of these charges relate to just handheld footage inside a pig farm at night showing pigs inside cages, showing pigs suffering. Um, one of the charges uh, related to the use of hidden cameras, installed hidden cameras, and that was at the country's largest pig slaughterhouse in Koroa, New South Wales. Um, that was the first time anywhere in the world that the public was able to see uh, the process of carbon dioxide gas chambers as a method of stunning pigs before slaughter. And this is something that the industry had been calling humane for over 20 years, we exposed it, and the world saw finally that it was the furthest thing from humane. And now I took that footage to the police station, and I said, you know, obviously something something horrible is going on here, and I was hoping that they'd do something about it. And it turns out they literally just started extracting data from that hard drive to try and use as evidence against me. They never had any intention of going after the slaughterhouse. So it's very disappointing. There's clearly uh, collaboration here, it would seem, between the police and these animal agriculture groups. And instead of going after the perpetrators of animal cruelty, they're going after the whistleblowers, the people who expose it. You're absolutely right there, Chris. And, and what it's, I think it's also important to point that out because and, and, it also links in quite well with what you brought up about privacy before as well, in that these, uh, these industries uh, also working closely um, with police as well and with the employees of these facilities and that they're requiring potential employees to, of, of these facilities to disclose current or past ties to animal protection groups. So they're asking them to hand over personal details about their past and one, I can only come to the conclusion that, that what they're actually trying to do with all of these laws um, is to not only stifle the long-term investigations by forcing people to immediately hand over all of this footage, but to guarantee pretty much that none of this footage ever actually comes to light and the public become unaware. Because as we all know, when industry is left to self-govern, when industry and police and, and, and legislation work hand-in-hand... These these items of evidence get turned over to individual investigations and can be bound up for years. Meanwhile, the industry itself continues to carry on as before. These are just all methods of obfuscation and, and methods to stop the general public from ever seeing what comes to light. Absolutely. They rely on secrecy. They rely on people not knowing what's going on inside because most people would not support it if they knew the truth. And there have been countless times when we've brought footage and photos to the authorities this is what we're told to do. They say, why don't you just take this to the authorities who are there to, to deal with it? That's their purpose. So we've taken it to them, to the police and the RSPCA on multiple occasions, some of those where animals are in immediate need of assistance, and we just get silence. We get nothing. So the only time we've ever had any kind of outcome is when we put it out to the public. That's interesting because, Andy, I think you were mentioning to me be- before as well how that it, that is again the only way to get things done is to put it out there in the public with the footage absolutely and then because it's they're using that delaying game and you know just leaving these complaints absolutely. there for years and unless you know these guys out there getting this evidence and 
putting in these cruelty complaints are like, well, come on. Well, can you imagine what would have happened with the, with the live baiting scandal, for instance, if Four Corners hadn't uh, aired the footage that they had been given and obtained from these facilities in all the different states? Can you imagine if they had just been handed over to the authorities? Would we have had any of these inquiries? Would we have had the Baird government in New South Wales at the time try and ban greyhound racing? Would we have had had any of that? Would we have had any of the inquiries, any of the public outcry? I say no, we wouldn't. I say that footage would have just been buried. Internal inquiries would have been made and the industry would have just tried to cover it up. Mm. Delaying is a tactic within itself, isn't it? You are listening to 3CR 855am, the Animal Advocacy Show, and we are talking with Christelle Force by phone about, um, well, we've covered ag-gag laws really, and uh, we're we're going to talk further about the dismissal of charges brought against him under those laws in New South Wales. Chris, just before we do that, when you talk about them, you, your mind can get a bit tangled, can't you? Because they, these laws are masked under distracting names or packages of law, such as the New South Wales Biosecurity Act and the Criminal Code Amendment Animal Protection Bill 2015. And, um, and also when it comes to very relevant, important discussion on privacy law reform, you know, and if, and if you're unaware, many of the current voting public would vote, oh, yes, come on, tick, tick, sign away, they're all very, they're important issues. Whereas the reality is that they're a clamp down on animal activists who are being a menace um, for the progress of profit in these animal agricultural facilities. In the throwing out of your charges, I'm reading from your Facebook page here, the magistrate dismissed the charges and a police were ordered to pay costs what did the magistrate mean by a politically motivated debacle? Well, I I, I shouldn't speak too much about what okay. the magistrate may have intended. We're mm-hmm. still waiting on the transcript, um, which which will be very valuable. Uh, we should have that in a few weeks, the exact transcript of what was said. But my impression of, of what uh, the magistrate was referring to was that um, in the scheme of things, these are very minor charges that they put in a lot of time and effort and resources into. Over two years, they were building this massive case. And it's clear that there's been strong political influence. This is clearly a political case. This is not about privacy. This is not just someone's personal privacy being invaded. This is a much larger issue. And it was clear, it seemed to me that it was clear to the magistrate that they were trying to use these these minor charges to tackle a much a much larger problem and it, and it was kind of an, an inappropriate way to go about it. So can I just ask when these charges were brought against you? How many years ago? These particular charges were laid at the end of 2015, December 2015. Um, prior to that, though, they had laid other charges, um, which were ultimately dismissed. So it all kind of began, though, when I was raided... Um, my home was raided in June 2015. So it's over two years that this whole thing has been going on. And can we just go over for new listeners to Freedom of Species? Um, I think it's important to the actual footage that was shown, and especially when it comes to bog standard everyday practices. Can you um, describe uh, those situations for us, for those individual animals? Sure. So there's there's a lot of footage of... Um, sows, pregnant pigs or pigs who have just given birth, trapped in cages in sow stalls and farrowing crates. They're stuck in there for weeks or even months at a time. There's footage of sick and dying piglets 
Um, there's footage, as I mentioned, inside the, the gas chamber at the largest pig slaughterhouse in the country showing pigs screaming and thrashing as the carbon dioxide essentially burns their insides. It's a horrible, horrible way to go. And this is all. these are all things that you can read about on, on the pork industry's website. They're things that they will readily admit, and yet they still want this footage of those practices to be, to be stifled. Is this the same footage that's in your Lucent documentary? Yes, a lot of, a lot of that footage was in Lucent. Mm. So, uh, yeah, uh, Aussie Farms has produced two amazing documentaries and another one's in progress. A thousand, one's called Lucent and one is A Thousand Eyes. If people haven't seen that, please go to the Aussie Farms website and um, take a look. Oh, can you see both of those? On, are they both available from the website? Yes, that's right. Okay, great. Thank you. I'm rather flummoxed here, Chris, because I, I saw some stuff last week, just last week or the week before, where Facebook had determined that uh, a thousand eyes was spam. Is that correct? Were they marking the, the HTML as spam? Yeah. So that's right. There's a particular domain, watchthousandeyes.com, and various uh, variants of that that had largely been used for street outreach campaigns uh, where people are showing, showing the clip in the streets to passers-by. Uh, it's becoming quite a popular thing around the world. And often when people go and participate in those events, there'll be Facebook posts about it showing photos from the day and stories about how people have seen the footage and decided to, to change their ways. So any post that had that URL in it was, suddenly disappeared um, overnight, I think. And anyone who then tried to post that URL was told that it was spam. It's So everyone who was was having that issue started reporting that it was not spam and maybe a week later is the the night before the trial began facebook seemed to determine that it was not in fact spam and everything was then restored but it's it's unclear as to why they ever thought it was spam in the first place whether it was a result of a large number of people reporting it trying to get it taken down uh, it's really not clear. There was no explanation provided to us, but it seemed like a, um, a deliberate attempt to stop that video being seen. It's very easy to draw that conclusion, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Chris... It's very worrying because yeah. when they may take down the whole Aussie Farms website next, they may block the whole website as spam. Mm. Uh, who knows what they're going to do? Wow. The magistrate determined that there was a major legal flaw in the way the case had been initiated, going back to your uh, dismissal last week, and pursued by the police, commenting that a lot of time and resources had been wasted over the last two years, as you mentioned before. So basically it was going to be a three-day uh, court case, wasn't it? Trial. And it yeah, was um, right. thrown out after how long, 20 minutes or something? About an, an hour. An, an hour? hour? Okay. So it was so like it was a little technical... It was like a technical glitch, was it, in, in legal jargon that the whole case was dismissed. Is that right? Well, well, essentially what they needed in order to lay these charges in the first place, they needed written consent from the Attorney General or, in this case, the, the, the Attorney General had deferred that responsibility to the Director of Public Prosecutions. So they needed a written form of consent. It needed to be um, in their possession prior to them even laying the charges and they were unable to produce any evidence that they received it prior. All they were able to do was show that they received it mid-last year. So that made all the charges invalid from the start. And there's a two-year um, statute of limitations on those charges, so it has to be within two years of the alleged offence. 
and those two years have now expired on all those offences. Um, so it's too late for them to reissue the charges. So it essentially meant the whole case crumbled on the first point that we raised. And this was just one of, of many points that um, that we or my lawyers had identified as flaws in the prosecution's case. Um, we're confident that they would have never been able to prove any of the charges. Mm. Thank you so much for your time, Chris, and all your incredible you. work. It's an absolute honour to have you on the show when we can. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. We'll take a short break now, and we're going to have a tune by Xavier Rudd called Mystery Angel. You are on 3CR 855am, the Freedom of Species show, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. And we were just speaking with Chris Force from Aussie Farms before about the dismissal of his charges under the new ag-gag laws in, in New South Wales last week. We're now going to switch the subject of the show. A greyhound breeding and training facility involving 120 individual greyhounds has been refused by the Mirable Shire Council in a victory against animal cruelty. Andy was one of the five objectors and is going to tell us about the campaign. Hello. Andy, this started about two years ago, is that right? How did you find out about the proposed new breeding and training facility. And, and can you tell us where Moorable is, where the, that Shire Council is? Right, Moorable Shire forms part of the Western District of Victoria. Okay. And in, in this particular case, it, it was at the town of Elaine. So you, you're sort of talking, sort of into the, out towards Hamilton Way, not quite that far, of course, but... A little, it, tiny little town, isn't it? A very small town, yeah, okay. a very small town. So basically what's happened is that uh, around five years ago, the original owner of this particular property um, lodged an application and was granted an application for a boarding kennel for 70 dogs and 50 cats to be located at the farthest end of, and corner of this particular property. Uh, there were no objections from any of the surrounding properties, and so it was, it was given approval. Now, in the meantime, this particular gentleman has bought the property and then decided he wanted to turn it into a greyhound breeding training facility for 120 dogs. And during that time, he, the, the, he submitted application for buildings, etc., and works to go on again at this northeast corner of the property, far away from everything else. And in the meantime, has built facilities right across the road from another neighbour, um, one of the other objectors. It, it's this, at this point, now, in broad terms, this has been going on for five years and there's been delays and delays and delays while the applicant changed the, the, what he wanted and, and illegally, uh, and, and this is, I'm talking from the council's perspective here, what they stated, that there were buildings and dogs housed there illegally from February 2015 because he was doing this without permit. And the reason that they found this out was because the, the person on the opposite side of the road objected to the council on noise grounds. Um, loss of amenity and on subsequent inspection was found to have these dogs on premises already. 
So th- this is where I came into it because the, the, the chappie concern uh, alerted me and investigations from, from our side of things discovered that the person who had made the application is the second largest um, breeder and trainer of greyhounds in Australia. So this is not a person who is considered a small mum and, do- mum and dad operation that the industry likes to portray. This is mm. high-scale, high-end commercial breeding and training facility. This is enormous, okay? So it was. It's, it's been a... A rather confrontational uh, campaign at times. Uh, there's been allegations uh, made of uh, bullying, of, of harassment, um, and intimidation. And uh, I can say those things because complaints have been made by Vic Pol, and Vic Pol has investigated those, and statements have been made. Um, and, and but beyond that, I can't go any further as to where that's going to, where Vic Pol are at with those. Now, the application itself, as it went before council to vote on um, was extremely flawed in that when you reviewed it and and had a look at what they were approved, the the recommendation actually was by the Chief Planning Officer to approve the facility. When you looked at why and what he relied upon, there were over 90% of the points that he raised and the conditions that he raised were reliant upon the enforcement of the new Victorian Code of Conduct, a Code of Conduct that has not yet been introduced that is being actively sought after by the industry for being completely thrown out and not introduced in the first place, and that individual members of their industry are campaigning to have either the the code itself watered down so it's irrelevant or completely struck out as well. So you have a situation where a Shire Council would be approving a facility where absolutely none of the conditions, potentially, if the code had been thrown out, none of the conditions would have been enforceable thereby handing this particular applicant a free reign to do whatever they like, provided that what they were doing fell obviously within other existing legislation under, say, for instance, POCTA. Hang on. Sorry, what's POCTA? Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act 1986. Cool, thank you. So can you just um, reiterate that? So basically what was going on there, just to take us around that one again, as in so he was relying on... Well, there's a number of provisions within the code, um, yeah. it, and there's literally quite like there's hundreds of them in there that the Victorian government is trying to bring in this new code of practice because mm-hmm. right across the country, the greyhound industry is on the nose. As we were talking before when Chris was on, you know, the exposure of live baiting and all these other practices have opened the the eyes of the Australian public up to what the greyhound industry actually entails, and in an effort to circumvent what happened in New South Wales where the Baird government introduced this ban which was subsequently you know then overturned um, that was a disaster for that particular government to lose a premier over that particular issue or any issue is is a, is it's a disaster for any government any sitting government and desperate to avoid that situation the Victorian government then approached the uh, Victorian greyhound industry and decided to formulate this code of practice with heavy involvement from the greyhound industry itself. Now, Which isn't eventuated yet. The code's no. not finished. It's still being worked out. That's right. Submissions okay. don't even close for another seven days. Okay. So, again, as I come back, so this application and then the council officer's recommendation to, to approve it were based upon these these conditions and, and, and items that are within this proposed code. That don't exist yet. That don't exist, exactly. 
Okay. So yeah, this <laughs> so was, was this was a subject of some some when we had the hearing that uh, was the subject of some consternation amongst the councillors, which promoted questions to the, the the planning lawyer as to how the hell did they expect that they were going to be able to enforce this if it doesn't come in? You're saying that your applicant is compliant and wants to work with council, but he's already proven that he hasn't worked with council because he's had dogs and buildings on the premises illegally since February 2015. How can it be proven that he is compliant? How can it be proven that he wants to work with council? This is a retrospective application. He's only doing it because he got caught. So there was also the situation with that the poor people who've been living opposite have been living with this for quite some time, in that you can imagine the noise that 120 dogs make. It's extraordinary. I've been out there at all times of day and night, it is unbelievable. Now, it's a matter of record that the applicant got uh, uh, an audiometrics tester to come out and surprise, surprise, that those audio tests were well below the legal limitations at all times of day and night. And not just that, but in his report to council, he, in my opinion and in my submission, he overstepped the mark in that he made an interpretation of the Planning Environment Act 1987 and pretty much advised council that they had to approve it under this clause, this clause and this clause of that Act. Now, I objected strenuously over that and I insisted that council go and get their own independent audio test because this could not be relied upon. The guy had rendered, this particular company, in my opinion, had rendered its opinion invalid because it had overstepped the mark. It had gone into areas that it is not required. They are there to report on what the noise levels were at any individual time of day or night. This had nothing to do with them as an interpretation of whether greyhounds are part of animal agriculture or whether they're not, um, or, and, and several other points that he raised. And In essence, I was saying that he was trying to coerce counsel. He was trying to strong-arm them into a particular opinion. Okay, so basically the area, is that a particular zone? Like is that an industrial zone for animal agriculture where it's a farming he wanted zone. the... It's a farming zone. Yeah, and this is where so, the Act is also... Like, this is really relevant. The Act is very contradictory. The Planning Environment Act 87 is very contradictory in this in this area. In, in no, I think if from memory off the top of my head, in no less than four different areas, it insists that the farming zone is overwhelmingly and in all cases given over to practices that one would consider farming or agriculture and lists occupations such as sheep, grazing cattle, poultry or crops, that these are what are considered in broad terms agricultural activities and that the Act provides that and states that farming zone land is to be allocated for agricultural use and then refers to sections later in the Act when a person wants to undertake animal keeping and breeding, which is determined to be a different activity. When you go into those sections in the Act, it refers you back to the farming zone and says that we, we want these, um, these activities of breeding and keeping animals to be uh, ideally located within a farming zone. But the, the termination of the farming zone is completely different. It doesn't want it. They contradict themselves. So it's a, it leaves it grey and it leaves it open to interpretation. And, and this works in, in, in animal welfare's favour sometimes and it works against it in others. It just depends okay. on the individual case. Yeah. Um, I felt that in this case it worked in, in our favour because in those sections of the animal keeping and breeding, 
it refers extensively to the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. Okay, so when you're dealing with so greyhounds, are they exempted from any law compared to other laws that could protect a domestic greyhound? No. When it comes to that, no, the they're same. all covered under that same act. They're all okay. covered under that because, again, in the act, greyhounds are not considered agricultural animals. They are looped in with the breeding and keeping of animals sections of the act. Um, because that section of the Act has said that we think that farming zone is the best place for these because, generally speaking, they're large facilities and they have a lot of animals. And where you have a lot of animals, generally speaking, you can't have them, obviously, in a domestic, you know, in a a res one area, for instance. Um, You've got to have an area to keep them. And and, and things that... The the thing that I find most distressing, I guess, and one of the things that I raised um, from an animal welfare perspective and animal rights perspective in my submission to council as well was that one of the sections under the proposed code is about exercise of the dogs. Now, at the moment, the greyhounds are only required, the amount of exercise that they're required to give is to take them out for their training, which can last anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour during a day, and then the rest of it they're left to their own devices or they're locked up in these pens. There's no you know, association with other animals or other dogs. So they live their entire life in, in this regimented, ostracised manner. And this is considered not normal or healthy behaviour. And that, that kind of that brings to light how they do kind of portray. There was an article since the um, you know campaign was successful for that permit refusal by council. A person that was oh I, you know oh I can't breed my greyhounds now. I'm just a lonely you know yeah, yeah, lonely yeah. old guy that's got nothing else to do. And you know, oh, it was there, very much there was a picture of like him cuddling this greyhound, like oh what am I going to do now? And mm-hmm. I love my greyhounds and kind mm-hmm. of all this soft focus around it. But what you're saying, it's very very large money behind these facilities that some people want to push to come back into uh, being because they're very lucrative. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and to, to put pay to that myth as well, when you actually saw the plans of what was going to be proposed here, this new facility, if he'd been able to go ahead with the other buildings that he wanted to put on it, would have covered the entire property. Wow, that's a lot. And, and there were things that were brought up. One of some of the things that council knocked it back on was, was not just on the loss of amenity for the neighbours for noise and stuff like that, but one of the key aspects which I brought up, which is also in, in, in the proposed code, was what to do with waste management. Because at the moment it was brought up that council observed that waste from this property was being fed into a freshwater stream that ran through it, which then went on to other neighbours' properties where they had other types of animals, where they had sheep, where they had cattle, and into the places where these animals drank from. That's interesting because getting to the nuts and bolts of how, with the existing laws, how you can stop these facilities from coming about you rely on those points don't you like or like the um noise is that interfering with other people's um enjoyment or use of their neighboring land or effect on water or waste or you have to kind of stick to those very much so nuisance Um, factors don't you to stop these facilities from starting but what point of difference with your campaign is that the actual exposure of all that footage mm-hmm. um, that Animal Liberation and, and Animals Australia kind of um, put out there through Four Corners, etc., that had an effect on, didn't it, on your campaign being successful, didn't it? It certainly this? did. It certainly did because one of the points that during... I, I, 
As you can imagine, I've sat in on uh, right across the western region of Victoria. I've sat in on a number of different councils and a number of different meetings for different applications for things. And it's boring as hell. I don't know if anyone has ever listened to not question time in Parliament, but the business of the Senate on ABC Radio. It is the most terribly boring thing you'll ever listen to in your life, and that is what a council meeting is like, by and large. I have never seen councillors get emotive about anything. Oh, sorry, I tell a lie. On one other campaign, and that is the flag, the flying of the rainbow flag in, in Surf Coast Shire, where they got emotive about that. But in all other aspects, I've never seen councillors get emotive about anything. And these they're guys, bo- they're bored by it too, no doubt. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And these guys, I was looking at, at a table of a council largely made up of grey-haired old guys in their 60s, late 60s, early 70s, who were farmers in the local area, who would, generally speaking, if they saw an application coming through for a new sheep shed or something like that, would just be like, oh, yeah, mate, yeah, no problems, you know. And these guys were standing up in their chairs, running their hands through their hair, looking exasperated, asking all the right questions about the welfare of the dogs, and one of them actually even said to the planning lawyer, if we refuse this... What is this guy going to do with these 120 dogs? Where are they going to end up? And he couldn't give him an answer. Wow. And it was very telling. You could see the exasperation and the pain on their faces that they did not want to know or didn't want to grasp the concept that there could foul play somehow could befall these animals on the, on the part of their actions. Wow, that is that is a sweet victory, isn't yeah. it, mm. at that point? Yeah. You're on 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show, and we'll be back after this. Australians love their digital equipment, and that's all fine and good because it increases our quality of life, but we need to think more carefully about what we're doing when we're finished with it. E-waste is growing at three times the rate of other municipal waste. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. You're on Freedom of Species and we're talking with Andy Medic, Animal Justice Party uh, campaigner and also a Freedom of Species reporter about the successful campaign whereby in the Murrabool Shire in Victoria an application for a greyhound, greyhound breeding and training facility was refused by council. Andy, I just wanted to kind of talk about some nuts and bolts of that campaign process. Like where, if people are living in regional Victoria or wherever actually, how do they find out look around to see if anything's happening in their area and get involved in campaigning against. Okay, so, so if you're mm-hmm. talking about someone being aware of something happening, mm-hmm. um, very much so it starts at a ground roots level. If they're close by to neighbouring properties, for instance, and if there's an application in, applications for any kind of development have to be advertised and they have to be advertised in a number of ways. There has to be a notice on the property prominently displayed in a public position, listing what the application is for, with a planning number and with a contact at the relevant shire. There also has to be on that notice an application submission period, a date frame, in which you can make, an, uh, you know, make a submission to council. 
about whether you want it or whether you, you don't want it. Hang on, but that, that notice that's prominently displayed, that could be on a back road. It that's could, exactly right. So it could but be this, in the back road and the back of beyond. That, that's right. It's far easier within an urban situation because generally speaking they're on street frontage yeah. and, and people will see it. And the most common version of that is if you're walking past where a house is being bulldozed and a set of units mm. is being put up. That's where most people would see that. Yeah. On these types of large-scale developments though, be they a housing development or be they uh, like say bulldozing of land, clearing of native trees, etc. for a housing development or in this situation for this, they are, yeah, they can be displayed. As long as they're displayed on what is determined to be like a, not so much an access road but a main road. Or that that, that borders a public road that borders the property is where it is required. But on top of that, council has to also advertise the objection process, and they have to do that in a number of ways. They must do it in the local papers. They must make under the act, under the act all reasonable means for public to become aware of that application and to make an objection if they so choose. So apart from that, so there's newspaper advertising. Um, the councils these days always also put out their own news flyers that they send out to residents, etc. So it has to be in that. Um, and, and any other number of things that they would normally have it on. And in this digital age, they must have it on their website, for instance. So you need to be vigilant. You need to be checking these things out, right? Because they don't sort of come to their local paper and say, hey, come and take a photo of Councillor Smith because he's about to announce that there's going to be a, uh, a development, you know, application, you know, so it goes yeah, on the front yeah. page of the local paper. These yeah. things are they're, they're hidden away in local government sections and announcements and things like that. You have okay. to have a look at that. And quite often these things start by an applicant going to council and seeking a rezoning of a particular piece of land and council will advertise that that there is to be a, a recommendation put forward and it'll list the property number, it'll list the application number to rezone a particular piece of land. Once that rezoning Ooh. has occurred, that then allows, by and large, that sweeps away a lot of the the objections that you might have. Ah, so, so the, the, it's good to check that out as well. If, you know, all you people that have moved out for tree change and tree change and sea change environments to check out the rezoning areas... Mm-hmm. Because you're saying if it suddenly is an industrial zone, I don't know the zone regs, but um, but then it's going to be easier for them to get other um, well to get the facility up and running because that, you don't exactly have right. those laws that prohibit you from. Um, it's not the be all and end all mm-hmm. because where it's in the proximity to say residences and that sort of thing, for instance, you have different applications come in that that that, that join to that sort of things of like as of right usage and stuff like that. The proximity to residents for anything like this is always considered a priority by council because so many of these facilities have been knocked back because they do exactly that. They they impinge upon a resident's amenity, be it noise, be it waste, smell, you name it. There's any number of things. And both, both councils and VCAT hold that particular act of law, that particular right under the law in high regard. Right. It, it's, it, it reminds me of the say no to Blantyre, Farm, uh, Blantyre Farms um, in hard and uh, successful campaign as well. They relied heavily on those situations also um, entailing the transport around the new facility. So that's something to take into account. It's like if you're going to be building new roads, mm-hmm. more trucks are going to come in mm-hmm. 
um, you know, there was more usage of the road, etc. That's something you can definitely highlight. Oh, and, and where you're talking yeah. about, um, in say, for instance, uh, like a piggery, you have an amazing disease control aspect that you have to look after. So these trucks that are around, say, places like Blantyre Farms and stuff, they have to be disinfected before they leave because under that Biosecurity Act, I mean, what they talk about in terms of uh, animal activists and and, people coming in, they always try to make it out as though that there's this biohazard from someone bringing in off their shoes and, and putting it in and, you know, wiping out their facility. What they're worried about is a disease being brought in from outside on, on some item of clothing or on shoes or something like that and wiping out their stock. Uh, to me, that's a patently absurd thing. There are... I would struggle to think of any disease that's rife in Australia that can be picked up on a shoes and brought into a piggery and wipe out a whole stockload of pigs. I, I find that incredible. It, but the whole biosecurity thing then, because that's one of the concerns they have of people bringing stuff in, right? They, they put it that way and they play on the public fear of that. But it, the it biosecurity does, thing is bringing stuff coming out in my concern. It does concern. seem absurd because I think that was one of the things that came up in um, Crystal Force's court case that the pig farmer, I think... Or one one of the industry reps that was there was saying, "Oh, these activists, are, they're a biosecurity hazard because they're bringing stuff into the farm." It was mm. like, a, you know, like a pig farm, which one of the problems with pig farms is how what dirty environments they are. Mm-hmm. Do you know that they're, they're it's full. I mean, that's one of the the welfare issues that, that, that these animals are living. That's right. In in a horribly dirty environment, and then they're citing. Biosecurity, it's yep. just like this is crazy talk. Yeah, you don't have, for instance, you don't have foot and mouth in New South Wales and the Southern Islands. It's non existent, for instance, you know, and, and you don't have any number of diseases out there as well in Australia. Australia has exceptional biosecurity safeguards on its borders, and to pay, it's just patently absurd to suggest that these people can be bringing something in that's going to affect these animals when the problem is from within their own walls. If you've seen any of this footage, you will see that they, 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 you've got these poor animals that are living in situations, for instance, where they're, they're up to their necks in filth. They've got weeping and open sores and, and things like that. That's not brought in from outside by someone planning a camera. That's what these animals are <laughs> yeah. living in by the conditions that are enforced upon them by the owner of the farm. And so if they were talking biohazards like swine flu, for example, mm-hmm. that would be arrested at the border, mm-hmm. wouldn't it? That's right. That's not arrested at the at the farm gate. No, that's an issue. That's that that happens at quarantine. That's exactly right. Mm. So it, it does. It's sort of it's sort of nonsensical. Mm-hmm. I think it's in, it does um, take us back to the ag gag law, uh, masking. Um, of repackaging those laws to sneakily come in under these biosecurity acts or criminal code amendment bills or privacy um, uh, privacy reviewing. Mm. So it does blur into those areas, doesn't it, yeah, in it, that this, way? This, is, this yeah. is all about controlling narrative. This is about making the general public think that they're doing something that's actually protecting them right? and protecting these people from these evil animal activists that are poking camera lenses in through the bedroom windows of these people's houses and things like that. That's that's what they're trying to make them think. When they, because the general public, when you're talking in terms of privacy, that's what they're thinking about: personal privacy. Yes. 
right? Mm-hmm. And, and they tend to think they're trying to make it sound like these people have entered the premises and literally snuck around people's houses trying to catch them up to all strange sort of things in their bedrooms, for instance, you know, <laughs> they're like, like they're paparazzi or something like that, okay? When the, 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 the opposite is actually true. They're at pains not to disturb anybody mm-hmm. because the footage that they're required to take requires that they're not discovered planting these devices. Mm. This is how it works, you know. It, you're not going to go in and say, knock on the door and go, <laughs> hey, you know, um, Johnny Activist here, would you mind? I'm just going to go nick in and stick a camera up, you know. Yeah, it's interesting because the le- length the huge length and breadth of footage um, that Aussie farms have collected on their website there. It, it, it's interesting how they they like to incite the fear of all oh, the people's privacy is privacy is being impinged upon. And it's I know that on the Voices website they say that, um, you know, corporations and individuals are sort of, you know, tr- corporations are treated like an individual, isn't it? So it's very, mm. it's very good to be mindful that corporations should not be permitted to hide behind a claim of invasion of privacy to avoid punishment or culpability of animal cruelty. Mm-hmm. You know, it, that's, it's a very that's good them point. hiding behind. Absolutely. It's a very good point. Using that yep. to um, – because when you think – animal activists are, are in there because they want to show the animal cruelty, nothing else. Mm. Yep, Exactly. Why else? I got nothing else. I agree. Yeah, they're putting their life. They're putting themselves at risk anyway, and they're the only ones that with, you know, we're really God. Yeah, well, thankful this is to the thing. You see, we, we grant it. Australian law grants the status of personhood to corporations under law, and yet we do not grant that same status to sentient beings, and that's the bottom line. We don't grant personhood to a pig in a piggery, to a dairy calf on a dairy farm or to a rabbit on a factory farm or a chicken on a factory farm, or any of those sort of things. We don't grant them the status of personhood yeah. despite the fact they're living sentient beings, same as us. Yet we grant a corporation the status of personhood under law. We'll leave it at that. Thanks, Andy. I think we've got um, time for some community service announcements now. Okay, two very, very important ones that are happening in the town of Ballarat. On Saturday next week, which is the 19th at midday, um, we will be... Uh, the the Ballarat sub-branch of the AJP will be hosting a a banned factory farming rally. Now, this is hosted by the AJP branch, but this is a rally that is open to everybody, and I encourage anybody who is concerned about factory farming practices just like have been exposed by Chris Delforce, if you're concerned about those, come along to this rally and hear from some great speakers about what that is all about and why we need to keep these things in the public eye. Where is it exactly? Uh, Sturt Street at the front of the town hall. Okay. Yeah. Ballarat. And that's at midday Ball- in Ball- Ballarat. Yeah. And the following day, head out to Ballarat Racecourse. There'll be a bunch of people out there for a protest on jumps racing. This horrible practice continues in the state of Victoria and the card is a full card of jumps at Ballarat. It's an entire day of jumps racing. And it makes me shudder to think that what is possible out there. I'll put both of those events on the on our Facebook page um, sometime this week. Fantastic. Um, I've got some more uh, community announcements. Um, the first one, a Plastic Ocean, which is a new documentary um, about um, plastic pollution in our oceans. That's screening at the Village Cinemas in Geelong this Thursday evening, the 17th of August at 6pm. Then 
Jared Wedderburn Bishop, who has been a guest on this show twice in the past. He's an amazing, amazing um, source of knowledge on animal agriculture and the um, land clearing, land clearing for, for beef agriculture. He's speaking at Loving Hut in Mount Gravatt in Brisbane, and that's going to be happening on Saturday, August the 19th at 7pm. That that talk is entitled Appetite for Destruction. I encourage everyone to go along to listen to Jared Wedderburn Bishop because he's amazing. He knows so much stuff and he did a lot of work on the land use plan for Beyond Zero Emissions. There's going to be a beach clean-up with the Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign in Adelaide at Largs Bay Beach. That's going to be happening on Sunday the 20th of August at 10.30am. Riders for Truth is a free event for animal activists. It's about empowering activists and, what's the word, helping them become better animal activists. That's taking place at the Ceres Environment Park in East Brunswick. That's on Sunday the 20th of August at 2pm. And then over in WA, there's going to be yoga in the pasture. That's going to be a fundraiser for the Green Pastures Animal Sanctuary, and that's in Waruna, WA. That's Sunday, August the 20th at 11am. I'm going to put details of all of those on our Facebook page shortly. Excellent. We're going to wrap up now. Thank you so much, Christelle Force, Dory Kiss, Andy Medic, Kate Gracie, Voiceless the Animal Protection Institute for its resources. They make the law easy to understand for a layman such as I. And, of course, Xavier Rudd. Kate Elliott will be back in the chair next week. If you'd like to contact us, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org, Twitter or the Facebook or via the website. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, up next is in psychedelia they've got a fantastic live broadcast from the students for sensible drug policy australia's first national conference challenging the narratives of prohibition see you next week cheers guys Like there's no way home I've got some extra strength to give You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.